0: 1, 1 through 14, It's our scripture reading that uh, we're going to be preaching out of. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places
1: Thanks, John. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Vince, I'm one of the pastors here, and welcome. If it's your first time, we are glad you're here. Today, we start a multi-week season um, of diving into the Book of Ephesians, and I hope you brought your thinking caps today. Maybe your uh, your thinking helmets, because we're going to deep dive, head into one of the richest, deepest, most theological passages in all of Scripture, Ephesians one. 3 through 14 is one long sentence in Greek, 202 words. So it's a sentence that theologians love and English teachers hate because it is one long, spirit-inspired, run-on sentence. And a few things you should know as we dive into Ephesians is that, um, first, the book of Ephesians is considered to be one of Paul's, really his, his masterpiece, because in six very short chapters Paul unpacks some of the richest theology, everything essential for you to know about the Christian life in six very short chapters. If you understand these pages in these chapters, you will be a theological ninja master. So (laughs) I'm going to encourage you to read it. Let it marinate in your heart. The first three chapters are filled with this just rich truth about who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. And what that means for our identity, who we are as a result of that. And then the second part of the book moves into some really awesome practical instruction, some of the uh, most concise yet uh, powerful practical instruction you'll find anywhere in scripture, um, stuff about marriage and forgiveness and conflict resolution and workplace relationships and family and a host of other day-to-day issues. And, and that's partially, I think, where a lot of people tend to go wrong with the book of Ephesians, because they see it primarily either as a theological book or as a really practical book to help you with your day-to-day life. But Ephesians was written as a letter to the church in persecution. It is a survival guide for the church in troubled times and hostile environments. The city of Ephesus was one of the most formidable, magnificent, amazing cities of the ancient world. City of Ephesus was second in size and influence in that time, only to Rome. It was huge, ginormous city. It was a seaport right at the intersection of Europe and Asia, which made it one of the main trading hubs for that place in the world. It was cosmopolitan. It was multicultural. It it boasted one of the largest libraries in all of the world of all time, the Library of Celsus. And so because of that, many people from all over the world, scholars, would move there to study religiously, it was all over the place, smorgasbord, over 50 temples, including the largest temple anywhere in the world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. And so because of that, you know, sexual immorality was a literal industry there. Most of the temples had some type of temple prostitution as part of the worship ritual. So it was a common saying back then that what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus Unless, of course, it's contagious, then you bring it back with you. All this to say, Ephesus was a hostile environment to the church. It was was troubled times for believers, which is what makes this letter so timely for us. And one of the reasons why we're diving into it, because many of us are in environments that are increasingly hostile to the gospel. For some of you, that's your school, your workplace, maybe even your family, Our world is rapidly changing. America is becoming increasingly post-Christian, following closely behind Europe. There are literally places in the world, places my daughter has been in on her mission trip in the last month, places we may go over this next year where it's illegal to be a Christian. Just a couple of weeks ago, Over the Christmas, the holiday season, a a church in China called Early Rain Covenant Church that some of our local churches here in San Diego are directly connected with was, was shut down and over 100 members, including the pastor, were put in prison just for being Christian and practicing their faith. So our world is getting more and more like the world Paul was writing to. As we dive into this book, I just want you to know that one of the reasons we're doing it is because it's going to show us how to survive, even thrive, as a church in troubled times and hostile environments. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul opens his letter addressing the church that he helped establish. He was, you know, sometimes Paul would go certain places and be there only a few weeks, but in Ephesus, Paul was there for over three years. And he started in the synagogue, and he would debate in the synagogue. Then he moved over to the hall of Tyrannus, and he started teaching there every day for hours and hours and rented a space, and people would come from all over the city to hear Paul teach and to be discipled. So he greets them with grace and peace. And then verse 3 through 14, in that giant sentence, Paul plunges into a concept that many of us find difficult, frankly, the concept of predestination. And in verse 4, Paul says... God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then throughout the chapter, he repeats. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Which I know when you hear that idea of predestination, it raises some questions for us. Like, well, what about free will? And why does God choose some and not others? And those are great questions that we're going to get to. But first, I want to ask this question. Let's just ask this of ourselves. What is Paul teaching here, and why, why on earth is he teaching it? Because let me just give you a little ground rule, not just for this scripture, but for all of scripture, okay, and that is that there are some things about God we will never understand. Yeah? The Bible tells us in a verse that I love that really helped me with passages like this in the past, Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. See, there's a distinction between the secret things of God and the revealed things. Moses, the writer of Deuteronomy, is telling us that our responsibility is what? What's our responsibility? It's to believe and obey what's revealed. It's not to try to figure out all the secret things because your head's going to hurt quite a bit trying to figure God out, right? And the fact that some things remaining hidden really seems to aggravate a lot of theologians and a lot of Christians who, who really insist on having it all figured out. But we're talking about God here. It shouldn't surprise us that rem- there remains a realm that is hidden from us, right? I mean, imagine trying to explain quantum physics to a four-year-old, right? I mean, it's hard to explain quantum physics at all. How many of you could explain quantum physics? I'll give you the mic right now. That's a a big concept, right? Now, let me ask you this. Just because it's hard to understand and hard to explain, does it make it less true? No, of course not. And what's greater, the gap between a four-year-old's understanding and ours or the gap between our understanding and God's? Right. And so just think about this for a split second. We live confined to space and time. God created space and time. God lives outside and fills space. Space and time. We are finite. God is infinite, right? There's no way that we could ever fully understand God. So we approach this subject understanding that we are delving into realities that our mind can barely grasp, right? It's deep. Sometimes we read passages like this, and we're like, wow, that's really deep. And it's kind of like where the 10-year-old boy who goes running out into the ocean gets 20 yards out there, and he's in seven feet of water, and the waves are crashing over his head. He's like, man, it's so deep out here. It's like, buddy, just go out another mile and see how deep it gets, right? It's going to go down miles and miles. And it's the same thing with God. Sometimes we get into these passages, and we're like, this is way over my head. We haven't even scratched the surface of how big and grand God is. Keep our mind on the, on the fact that the subject of this passage is God. So again, what are the scriptures saying here, and why does God tell us these things? What, what does God want us to know about this passage? First, verse four, when it says we're chosen, we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that's an, that's an awesome thought. Just let that rest on your heart for a second. Before the world was ever established, God knew you and loved you. There's never been a time in all eternity past that God didn't know you and love you. As long as God has been in existence, which is forever, you've been known. He's cherished you. He's planned to redeem you. I think sometimes people think that this verse means that God just kind of knew beforehand. God kind of looked down the corridors of time and said, hey, there's Vince. Vince." is going to choose me, so I'm going to go ahead and choose him. That's not what this verse is saying. It says that he set his love on us and chose us before we were even a twinkle in our daddy's eye. Look at verse 3. From verse 3, when the process of salvation begins, all the way to verse 14, when the process of salvation comes to completion, it is God who's taking all the action. Right? By the way, I told you this is one long, 202-word sentence. The sentence, that, or the 48 pronouns, 30 of the pronouns refer to God. There are 24 verbs or action sequences in this passage. 20 of them belong to God. Only four of them are things that we do. Look at verse 3, God blesses. Verse 4, God chooses. Verse 5, God predestines and adopts. Verse 6, God gives grace. Verse 7, God redeems and forgives. Verse 8, he lavishes Verse 9, he makes known and he purposes. Verse 10, he unites us together in Christ. Verse 11, God works. Verse 13, God seals. What do we do? <laughs> listen to the four things we do. We listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. Amen. We listen to his work in the gospel. We receive it, we believe on it, and we hope in it. We respond to God's work. Isn't that beautiful? And you say, what part of salvation do I do? Well, we did all the sinning, and God did all the saving, right? Jesus is the hero of the story. And the questions come up like, well, why did God choose me? What was it about me? What was special about me? Was it my potential? Did God see that I was going to make this awesome Christian? He's like, man, I'm going to stack my team, so I need Vince on my team, right? This girl has leadership skills. I need her on my team. This guy is is gonna be a great debater. No, not at all. all, right? In one of the most beautiful, mystifying passages in the Old Testament, when God was explaining to Israel why he chose them, look at what he says, Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you. In other words, it's not your potential, I didn't choose you because you were great. You became great because I chose you. I didn't choose you because you were more lovely. You became lovely because I chose you. And you say, wait, 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 wait. Maybe it's that I wasn't gonna be as sinful as some of those people, right? You know, maybe God saw deep down that I had a good and teachable heart. Well, that's not true either. Look again in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. In other words, yeah, it wasn't actually your good heart either. Actually, your heart was probably even harder than others. God didn't look down and say, oh, there's still some good in that one. I'm going to save him. No, that's Star Wars. It's not the gospel. There's no good in you. In chapter 2, Paul explains, we were dead, dead in our trespasses and sin. How dead is dead? It's really dead, right? There's uh, one of the... One of the uh, movies we used to love as a family, we watch it almost every year, is The Princess Bride. There's that scene where Inigo Montoya and Andre the Giant come in and they're like, their hero Wesley's dead, so they take him to this wizard to revive him. And the wizard says, Don't fear, boys, he's only mostly dead. Right? And then he takes the billows and like puts it in his mouth and like revives him, right? And breathes air into him. Now that might be good entertainment, but it's bad science and it's bad theology. There's no such thing as mostly dead. You're either dead or you're not. And Jesus didn't go around Jerusalem looking for people who were just only mostly dead and reviving them. When Jesus raised people from the dead, it was people like Lazarus who were dead for four days. Why? Because in Jewish tradition, you could be dead for up to three days, but the fourth day is when corruption set in. So everybody knew he was dead. The tomb rolled away and they said, Lord, by four days, he stinks. He stinks. Don't open that tomb, man. You should have got here earlier. But Jesus waited so that when he rose Lazarus up from the dead, everybody would know it was a miracle that he was actually dead. By the way, just a sub point here. The Old Testament says you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. What day was Jesus raised on? The third day, yeah. Cool little point. We were dead. There was no life in us. There was no good in us. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul is going to tell us, that sin actually made us God's enemies, sons of disobedience, objects of wrath. I know we say, well, hey, well, sure, I've made mistakes, you know, but I'm I'm mostly lovable, right? But what you're underestimating is the sinfulness, the wretchedness, the, the brokenness, and disgustingness of sin. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest minds that's ever come out of America, philosopher, theologian, pastor, said this, the slightest sin, has an infinite amount of hatefulness in it, enough to outweigh whatever loveliness the creature possessed. So yes, there are lovable things about us, but the hideousness of our rebellion against a good and loving and gracious God so outweighs those things that we're classified as as God's enemies. So what was it then about you that caused him to choose you? And this is the mystifying part. Did you see the phrase in, in Deuteronomy 7, 8? It says, it was just because the Lord loved you. So why, why did I love you? Because I loved you. Circular reasoning there, God. What's going on there? I'll explain it like this. I think, um, and this is something you can ask my kids. I, I quiz them on this. I've tried to train them on this. Like, why does dad love you? Is it because you're good looking? It's like, no, but you are good looking. But that's, that's not why. Dad loves you. Is it because you're so smart? No, Dad, it's not because we're so smart. Is it because you're so funny, so cool? No, Dad. Why do I love you? Because we're your kids. You love us. And I think parenting is the most pure relationship where I've ever experienced that, where you just love somebody because you love them, because of their relationship to you. I don't love them specifically because of any one part of them. I love them just because I love them. Before we'd ever done good or bad, before the foundation of the world, God set his love on us, and that gives you hope. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. And by the way, if you don't read Charles Spurgeon, I want to recommend that you do. He's got a great uh, thing called Morning and Evening, short paragraph every day you can read. It's free online. Read some Charles Spurgeon. But he says this, I have no questions that God chose me. Because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. I'm sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. (laughs) And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love, so I feel I'm forced to accept this doctrine. And you know what it is? It's kind of like The Voice. Anybody watch The Voice? And what happens? you got the chairs... And, and the person comes out on stage, and nobody can see him. The chairs are turned with their back, and the person starts singing. And then if they like what they hear, Adam Levine, you know, whoever, they'll slap the buzzer, and they'll turn around. And what's it say in front of the chair? Anybody know? Yeah, I want you. Yeah. It's a bad example. Only one person watches the voice here. <laughs> Got to work on my relevance. Um, it says, I want you. And you know what it is? It's like, it's as if God was sitting there in his chair, and we walked out on the stage, and before we ever sang a note, good or bad, he slapped that buzzer, turned around, and said, I want you. I choose you. Another makes you ask a question like, well, doesn't that violate my free will? No, the Bible says that God's choice is never against our free will, but it's always in concert with it. And it brings up this tension, because in some places, God says, like in Ephesians 1, I chose you before the foundation of the world. But in other places, like in Revelation 22, he says, whosoever will may come. And Jesus explained it when he said this in John 6, no one comes to me unless my father draws him. So our choice to come and the father's drawing go hand in hand. That word drawing in in Greek is the word helkuo, which carries this idea of a desperately hungry person being drawn to food. In other words, God placed a hunger in us for Jesus, and then he gave us Jesus, and those of us were drawn to him who were chosen. You see, the problem is not that we wanted to choose God, and we couldn't. Our problem is that deep down, none of us really wants to choose God. We prefer to rule our own selves. We prefer to be the center of our universe. Our our wanter is all out of whack. So that's what it means to be spiritually dead. So God, through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, changes our hearts so that we begin to want God. And that brings up the other question: Well, why didn't God choose everybody? That's a big question. Get a sip of coffee before. (laughs) I'll say two things about it. One, keep in mind a truth that the Bible lays out: that God is not obligated to extend salvation to anyone. What's fair is that we all perish. We, we've earned that on our own. Romans 3 says that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of, all of us. And Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the good news, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fact that any of us have a chance to receive God's forgiveness is a gift Of God's undeserved grace, and the second point I'll make is that this part of the discussion is where a bit of that mystery sets in, because you know Scripture never once, not once, says that presents that a lack of God's choosing as the reason why somebody didn't come. Not once. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew: "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings?" And you were not willing. Second Peter says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible itself ends with, whosoever will may come. In other words, it's your choice. The last voice you'll hear stepping off the ledge into eternity is God's voice calling out, saying, you can choose me. It's not too late. The life Jesus brings is available to everybody, but everybody doesn't take advantage of it. John Piper says it this way, death is much like a car. It takes you where you want to go. I like, one of my uh, seminary professors said it this way. He said, when you get to heaven, there's going to be a big door. Now, in the front of that door, it's going to say, whosoever will may come. You know, walk through that door. And if you turn around and look back at it, it's going to say, you've not chosen me. I've chosen you. It's, a, it's, a, it's an antimony. You guys know what that word is? It's a seeming contradiction, but it's not an actual contradiction. We just don't know enough about it, right? It's like light. Which is it, waves or particles? Yes, right? Sometimes it's waves, sometimes it's particles. Well, which is it? It's got to be one or the other. As scientists, with all the brilliant minds and all the amazing tests that we can do, we still don't fully understand the nature of light. If we don't grasp the nature of light, how can we ever hope to grasp the nature of God? It's not an actual contradiction. It's just an apparent contradiction that we don't understand enough about. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. Election is best understood in hindsight, for it is only after coming to Christ that one can know whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ, listen to that, those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity past. I realize there's a mystery there, but, but what is revealed is this. If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. And if you're not, it's because you've chosen to reject God. So are you chosen? In one sense, you have the power to decide that. If you choose to repent and believe in Jesus, you're chosen. From the other side of the door, the choice is yours. We tracking? I know. It's like, huh? Yeah, it's okay. We're getting in deep water. That's why. Paul continues, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for what? Adoption through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful concept. Adoption means we were not part of his family, but he brought us in and made us part of his family. We weren't his like mostly good but wayward kids. We were rebels. We were members of a traitor race. And he said, I'm gonna make you mine. This reminds me of the movie Thor. Because in the movie Thor, you have Odin right? And Odin goes in and what does he do? He finds this little baby of the frost giants and he takes pity on him and he brings him home and he makes him his own. Anybody know the the name of the frost giant baby? Loki, Loki, yeah. Is Loki a good guy? No. (laughs) Does he live perfectly like an Asgardian the rest of his life? No, he starts to resemble an Asgardian. And even like, spoiler alert, if you didn't see the latest Avengers, he has some heroic moments. But he's pretty broken. He's pretty broken. Anyway, so that's, that's just a little <laughs> picture. God adopted us when we were his enemies, so his love would change us eventually. Like the, like the song we just sang, and I couldn't stop weeping as we sang it. The love of God is stronger than the power of death. Amen? God adopted us in love, and he did that joyfully. That, that word, by the way, translated purpose in verse five and verse nine, is actually the word kind intention. And I just want to make this point as we're talking about adoption. Uh, God didn't begrudgingly adopt us. God didn't begrudgingly engage in the process of salvation in our life. He enjoyed the process. Yes, it cost him everything. It cost him the blood of his own son, his own precious son, to accomplish it, but he did it joyfully because in the end he knew he'd have you. When I think of adoption, I think of how different birth parenting is. From adopting for many reasons, but mainly because birth parents don't really have a choice in who their kids are. And I know we have a lot of pregnant ladies in the church right now. We're going to have a lot of new babies. We're going to have a lot of new babies over the next year. Super exciting. And every time you see a baby, you grab me, oh my God, they're so cute. I could squeeze you, right? And then there's some weird person that says, like, I could eat you. It's like, what, dude? (laughs) She just outed herself. She's that person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but like, let's, uh, don't, don't tell anybody I said this, but like, have you ever, and this has not happened at all in this church, but have you ever seen a baby and you're like, is <laughs> <No. laughs> It's, <laughs> looks like the father, you know? <laughs> what do I say? Um, <laughs> we, uh, okay, I'll say this, and I asked him if I could. When Ivan, my, my eldest son, When he was born, uh, he's a good-looking kid now, super handsome. But I'll tell you, that moment when he first came out, he looked like a wrinkled, white alien rat. i He first came out, and I was like, ah! Put him back, put him back. He needs to develop more. (laughs) That's my point. You don't get to choose who your natural-born kids are. But when it's adoption... You show up at the adoption agency, you show up wherever it is, and you got the three-year-old, and they're putting on a talent show for you and showing you their their rap sheet and showing you, you know what I mean, all their their resume and everything, And, and you get to choose. You opt in. You say, I want you. I choose you. God didn't have to choose you. He chose you because he wanted to. And some of you need to grab onto that precious truth in your heart today and know how loved you are, that God wanted you. We're adopted. What's amazing about Christianity to me is that you don't even have to love God for him to love you. You can reject him and he still loves you because his love doesn't depend on anything you do. Unconditional. So we are adopted, but we're not only adopted. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you notice in this chapter, by the way, that the entire Trinity, the fullness of God is at work in our salvation? The Father purposes, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit seals. Our salvation is an affair of the entire Godhead. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, ensures us that God is going to finish what he started in you. That's why in verse 14, Paul calls him the the guarantee of our inheritance. What's he referring to? What's this concept that most of us are familiar with of collateral or an old term was earnest money? When you give a promise to somebody that you're going to follow through on a deal, what do you give them? Collateral. You know, you might sign your car over, sign your house over. You give them something precious enough that they know you'll never walk away from it. What's God given us as collateral toward our divine inheritance that's waiting on us? He's put part of his very self into us. How do we know that he's going to complete his work in us? How do we know that he's not finished with us yet? How do we know that he's going to return one day and bring us into heaven? Because he's already put the best part of heaven into us. Now, before we close this section, there's there's one more phrase I want to focus on, uh, make sure that we don't skip over, because if we don't get this, if we don't learn this, the rest of it won't really make sense. And that's the phrase that's repeated throughout these 14 verses, to the praise of his glory. See in verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, why does God do things the way he does them? That's the question. Why does he do things the way he does them? For the praise of his glory. He saved us. The way he did that was to demonstrate his glory. And by the way, this isn't the only place in scripture that we see this, not by a long shot. We see this all over the place. God says to Israel in Ezekiel 36, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It was not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations where you've gone. Or, of course, the scripture that, that um, Gavin, I helped Gavin memorize this past year, you know, Psalm Psalm uh, 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his namesake. Handful of quick thoughts on this. One, if I had to point out the primary corruption that sin has had on our thinking, it's the unquestioned idea that we are somehow the center of the universe, that the whole universe exists for us, that the most important thing is the, our well-being and, and our good. I mean, think about it. Even when we think about God, we think about what he does for us, how he saves us, how he can bless us, how he can give us our, our best life now. But you are not the center of the universe. Who is? Yeah. Yeah. Even your salvation was pursued in a way that brought glory to God, and yes, it's for your good. Jonathan Edwards makes this point abundantly clear in his, in his uh, treatise, The End for Which God Created the World, where he says that God's, God's purposes, God's plan, God's glory is never opposed to your good if you're in Christ, right? God's glory is actually for your good. But you are not the center of the universe. God is, and, and, and yes, it's for your good. God's glory and your good are not at odds with one another if you're in Christ. But even though you benefit from it, it all ultimately was for his glory. As you sit here, if that rubs you the wrong way, it's because there's still part of your heart that's living under the conception that this world is all about you and that this universe should exist for you. Two, until you understand this, God's glory is the center of everything, then nothing else in Scripture is really going to make sense to you. Your life won't make sense to you. And you'll never find fulfillment, not until you live for His glory above all else. It's kind of like the solar system. This is why this point is good news. Because in the solar system, what's at, what's at the center of the solar system? Job, yeah, sun. Well, Imagine what would happen if the sun got out of the center of the solar system. Everything would fall apart, freeze, die, planets crashing into one another. It'd be crazy. That's a picture of our life without God at the center. That's what's happened. Everything's out of orbit. Everything's all out of whack. But the moment we say, God, we want you to be the center of our life, everything starts to fall back into place, orbiting not around us, but around him. You don't have the gravitational pull to be at the center of your life. Everything will fall apart, but God does. Live for his glory. Point three, that means there's a lot more at stake here in your salvation than just you. God has bound up his glory, the glory of his name in your salvation. So even when you're wiling out, even when you're faltering, God's going to pursue you. Why? Yes, it's for your good, but also it's for the sake of his name. And that's really good news. Because point number four, it's also why God sometimes saves impossible people. People you'd never think could be saved because he likes to do some things where he alone can get the credit. I know some of you, when you got saved, the angels were like, huh? Like, raise your hand if you're like, yeah, that's me. God was just showing off. So believer, here's what Paul wants to thunder in your soul as you read this chapter. You're chosen. You're chosen according to the purpose of God, by the power of God, for the glory of God. And that's the greatest, most empowering, life-giving truth in the universe. And that's supposed to fill you with four things quickly. Number one, assurance during struggle. Listen, if we know that salvation began in the purpose of God, then what God starts, we know he'll finish. Right? Every genuine God-seeking Christian I know struggles at times with whether they could really be saved. You look at, like, what's really going on in your heart and you think, man, can I be a Christian and still think that? Can I be a Christian and still do that? Can I be a Christian and still fall into this pattern? I've thought that. Here's the good news. If God didn't choose us because of our goodness, he's not depending on our goodness to keep us following him. One thing I've learned over and over is that if I'm honest and I look in the mirror, I am a self-centered, broken train wreck apart from God's grace. My flesh is broken and evil, and if God took his mercy away from me, even for a second, I'd turn away. Like the song we sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for Thy court's above. I have this assurance that what he's begun in me, Philippians says, he's sure to finish. I had a friend a few weeks ago in super difficult times, life falling apart, marriage falling apart, everything. And we were talking and he said, man, this doctrine that I'm chosen has become the most precious doctrine to me. Because, I wrote it down, he said, after how badly I messed everything up, I realized that if it were about me holding on to him, I'd be hopeless. But I know he's holding on to me tighter than I could ever hold on to him. Now, I know some of you may say at this point, well, how how do you know if you're chosen? Because I look at my life, maybe my lack of spiritual progress is proof that I'm not chosen. And there are some hardline churches that preach that kind of thing. Oh, man, if you still struggle with addiction, if you still struggle with sin, then you may not be a Christian here's how you can know. 1 Corinthians 12 says, if you recognize that Jesus is Lord and you want to submit to him, that's the evidence that his spirit is at work in you. If you even want to be saved, if you even want to be reconciled to God, that's evidence that God is working in you. Just say yes to it. Just receive it. I've said this before. It's like waking up in an ambulance. You got the tubes coming out. What in the world's going on? You're zooming around the street, siren, and the paramedic or the doctor looks at you and says, Look, you've been in a terrible accident. You may not remember it, but don't worry. I'm saving you. Just lay back, receive it, and do what I say. I'm saving you. You can't save yourself. So we get assurance in struggle, too. We get strength after failure. This truth gives us the power to get back up again after failure because we know that what God starts, He will finish. I can be sure that even though today was consumed by defeat, God's creed for my tomorrow is is victory in Jesus Christ. Amen? Look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. What did he choose us for? To become holy and blameless. Believer, that will happen. That's a promise from God. You can take it to the bank. In the next chapter, Paul's going to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that's predestined, right? Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God predestined that I would become someone whose life would be filled with good works. My life would be to the praise of his glory. And listen, that means that the burden of fixing my life is not on me. God's already declared and supplied the power for it. We say it all the time that the burden of mission is God's and the blessing of mission is ours, right? And so you can't go out and save anybody, but God does call you to go out and witness and and bear witness, right? But the burden of their salvation is not on you. It's just your blessing to participate. It's the same with what's happening inside, inside your life, your own salvation, your own sanctification. The burden of it's not on you. It's your blessing to participate And what God is doing. Many of you right now feel so defeated. You think, how am I ever gonna get over my anger? How am I ever gonna overcome my lust? How am I ever gonna put my marriage back together again? Hey, you're calling us to mission this year. You're calling us to evangelize people, talk to strangers. How am I ever gonna do that? I'm an introvert. It's not my makeup, man. I'm sorry I can't do that. But that's the wrong picture of the Christian faith. Listen, the good works God has for you, he already predestined for you. He already provided the power for you to do. You can be confident in his plan for you because that's why he said he chose you. He did not choose me, he says in John 15, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit and that that fruit would remain. You just have to say yes to him. He saved you. To use you to bring other people to Jesus. Let me go back again and, and make sure that you understand that this is why the scripture says we're chosen. You were not chosen. It's not to unravel all the unfathomable mysteries of how God was at work in your past, but it's to give you the confidence of what God wants to do in your future. Check in. Right? In other words, instead of sitting around pondering why God saved you instead of your non-believing friends, realize that he saved you for the sake of your non-believing friends. Right? Did you get that? Yeah. Finally, all this means that when you fail miserably as a Christian, and you will sometimes, as long as, I mean, if you're not me, because I haven't yet, but you will. And... <laughs> you know what the Bible says about righteousness and the righteous man? I love Proverbs. One of my favorite verses. I've said it a thousand times. The righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. You know, seven is the number of perfection or completion. So this is a Hebrew way of saying the righteous man falls all the time. Imagine being at the mall and seeing somebody in front of you fall seven times. Like maybe the first time you're like, ooh, are they okay? And then the second time and By the third time, you're pulling your phone out to, like, video record it. (laughs) If they fall seven times, it means they fall all the time. But what? He gets back up again. Some of you are discouraged by how much you fail, but the righteous man shows his righteousness not by never falling, but by what he does when he falls. Falling just demonstrates you're not perfect, but getting back up again demonstrates that you believe the gospel. So you've messed up. So you failed. So you've disappointed yourself again. So you've made a wreck of your life. Maybe you've fallen flat on your face. So what? Get back up and believe the gospel because it's the righteousness of God in you. Amen. Woo. Felt good, yeah? Don't get too Pentecostal, okay? Come on. Three, God is working in every area of my life to make me a son that is to the praise of his glory. Three, it gives us hope in trials. Think about the fact that God has harnessed literally every molecule in the universe to that end. See verse 11? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How how many things? All things. Even those things where I feel victimized, where I feel hurt, where I'm confused, where I just feel unlucky. God is working in that for my good. To become like Christ. And I, I, I felt this, basically this week when I was trying to work on this sermon and it was uncanny. Every time I sat down to work on this sermon, something came up to where at the, like last night, two in the morning, I'm still typing, right? Drunk on sleepiness. Just sleepiness. <laughs> <laughs> right? I just got mad. I'm like, yeah, really God, all things? All things work, working together? Because this feels like Satan here, not you at work. Right? And the truth is like, There's some bad stuff we go through, and it's not all God purposing it. It's not all God. God's not doing evil to you. God's not doing bad to you, but God promises that he is using the things that the enemy works against us, the things that life works against us, the things that wicked people work against us and governments that are beyond our power. God is gonna use it for your good and for his glory. That's the truth we have. So you can still be mad at the devil and know that God is sovereign, right? Number four, This truth gives us confidence in disciple-making. I've heard people say, well, if God has already chosen those who will be saved, why do we share Christ? Ironically, for Paul, right, the fact that God chose some was what gave him confidence in mission. It's the key to understanding why it's here in the book of Ephesians. Right about the time Paul went to Ephesus, he stopped in this city where he was getting a lot of opposition in Acts chapter 18, and God gave him a vision. God said, Paul, go on preaching because I have many people in this city. There were no Christians yet, but God had elected many people. God had chosen many people in that city. Can you hear, Paul? Well, great. Where are they? Could you send them to me? I could use some help right now. But Paul kept preaching, believing that soon they would come. The fact that God had chosen many more people is what motivated Paul. I heard a missionary one time tell me, man, When I first started being a missionary, this doctrine was so difficult for me to swallow. He said, I I didn't know how I could be a missionary if I believed God had chosen people. But then after serving on the mission field for many years and seeing how hard people's hearts can be, he didn't know how he could go on being a missionary if he didn't believe God had chosen some. Because of people's hardened hearts. He said, unless I believe that God would change someone's heart, I'd be convinced people would never believe and I'd just give up and throw in the towel. I felt that back when we first started church planning, right? The idea that God chooses some to salvation doesn't discourage sharing Christ and empowers it. And you say, but last big question, why share if they're chosen? They're chosen anyway. Why do I need to share? Well, that's one of those areas where we're not supposed to try to figure out the secret things, right? All I know is that the more I share Christ, the more people seem to be getting elected, Best short explanation I have for this, I love this uh, quote from A.A. A. Dodge. He says this. Does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can he do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live, right? What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? <laughs> and he says, Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. <laughs> Eating is the preordained way God has appointed for living. <laughs> if you don't share Christ with them, does that mean that ultimately they weren't elected? Stupid question, right? Just go share the gospel. Do what you've been called to do. And you say, man, that makes my head work. Of, co- of course it does. We're like that 10-year-old boy in seven feet of water. And we're like, this is so deep. Trust me, it gets a lot deeper, Right? It's a paradox. It's a tension we live in. I share Christ with people like it's all up to me, but I pray to God that they'll receive Jesus like it's all up to him. Listen, if you believe this this truth, it will empower your walk with God. It will empower your mission for God. It will fill you with faith for his plan and purpose in your life. If you don't believe this, you'll end up living like it's all up to you. If you don't believe this, you will end up crushing yourself, trying to make yourself holy, trying to reach the world for Jesus, trying to do the work of God on your own strength. But the moment you see that salvation is His work from start to finish, it will free you to rest in His power, to lean into His purposes, and to believe that it is His burden to bear and it's your blessing to participate. And now, when you see yourself sin, you'll find rest in the fact that He's at work saving you in spite of your sin. And that faith will mobilize you to overcome and get back up again more than fear or guilt ever could. Right? When you see the fact that he's at work saving those around you, it will mobilize evangelism and mission for you like never before to your friends and your family and your coworkers. Because you know it's not up to you to save them. And yet he wants to mysteriously move through you to touch them like maybe nobody else ever could. It's precious truth. Is the most liberating doctrine I know, and it causes all of us to stop in our tracks in a moment like this and just look up and see God high and lifted up above all our circumstances, above all of our best and worst efforts. See him as the Savior. There's one Savior. It's not you. It's not me, and he's at work in your heart right now. Let's bow our heads. Christian, listen to me. If you're a believer in this place, you are chosen. Can you feel the confidence that gives you to have peace in the middle of the struggles you're facing right now, to get back up when you fall, to know that God has appointed you to be fruitful? Where can you say, God, right now by faith, because I believe in your work in me, I'm going to say, yes, use me for your purposes. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. Not because of fear, not because of guilt, not because of shame, but because of your goodness in the gospel, because you are sovereign and loving, and I know that in you I'm chosen. And to those of you who right now, you're not Christians here, or you're not sure, listen, you can be chosen. The choice is yours. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. Realize that some of you are here right now, maybe today God orchestrated circumstances beyond your control. Every molecule in the universe, he's using toward his end. He's sovereign over it for your salvation and your becoming like Christ. So the fact that you showed up here, maybe today you're the one waking up in the ambulance. Maybe today you're the one realizing how much God has loved you and this sounds like the best news ever. Just say yes. Will you receive his offer of forgiveness and submit to him as Lord? And he will save you right now. Let's pray. Father, We want to start this year off not just looking at what we can do with New Year's resolutions. Not just looking at what we've done in the past that brings shame and guilt to us and try to make up for it somehow with how we live this next year. But God, I pray that we would get our eyes off of us and lift our eyes right now in prayer to see you high and lifted up. To see your glory in the gospel that you sent your son to take our place to live a perfect life every day in his flesh. He he lived perfectly in the flesh. So when we come down and take communion as believers, and we take that wafer into our mouth, we remember that the righteousness of God is ours, that we are the righteousness of God because of what your son did in our place. He never did what was wrong, always did what was right, but he didn't stop there. He went up a hill with a giant piece of wood on his back and splinters and thorns and nails. And he took my place, the death I deserved on that cross so that I could have what he deserved, life. And as I drink that cup, I remember that his blood was spilt for me to pardon me from every sin, from every failure, and it gives me the power to get back up again. And I pray that for some people who feel like giving up right now, you would remind them of the gospel. And give them the strength and the power to trust in your righteousness, not theirs. To get back up again, to work on their marriages, to work on their life. And Lord, I pray that you would move through this room and get us as a church, not just looking up at you in worship, but to look beyond ourselves also as we walk out these doors. To remember that there is a world out there of people you've called you've chosen, and they just need your sons and your daughters to go out and and, and share the good news with them. Give us the passion to do that. Don't let us be just a, a dying group of people who sit around and talk about theology till we're blue in the face, God. Help us to live out this truth in our lives by your power, Holy Spirit, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.